Plugged In podcast, where we will have honest, courageous, and fun conversations about how women are plugging into climate, energy, and sustainable solutions for the planet. I am your host, Megan Bennett, and on this podcast, I will be giving women who are doing the vital work of saving our planet a platform to share their stories, their ideas, and their dreams for a better future. And I hope these conversations will inspire us all to plug into our personal missions and expand what we think is possible for our families, our communities, our work, and ultimately our planet, starting today. Welcome to the Plugged In Podcast. To fix climate change and the resulting social injustices and impacts, major systematic changes are going to be required. For Emily Eaton, Associate Professor in the Department of Geography and Environmental Studies at the University of Regina, she finds hope in the prospect of systematic change, changes that she believes are going to be required to get us to a clean and socially just energy transition. Emily and her colleagues are championing three specific systematic changes that we're going to talk about today. They call them the three Ds, and they are decarbonization, decolonization, and democratization. It's the combination of these three processes that really hold hope for a way to to a socially just climate solution. So let me tell you a little bit about my guest, Emily. She has studied the corporate power and influence of fossil fuel industries on rural institutions and culture in oil producing municipalities and examines the influence of oil and energy interests in Saskatchewan's kindergarten to grade 12 education system. She is currently involved in a community-engaged research project pushing to prioritize justice and equity principles in Regina's 100% renewable city strategy. Emily and I met 20 years ago while we were university students doing a semester abroad in Guatemala. It was such a pleasure to reconnect with her by phone in the fall of 2020 for this interview. And as you'll hear, she talks about a court challenge that she had taken against the University of Regina, her employer, for failing to disclose the source of oil and gas research funding. As an update to that story, since we recorded, uh, in February of 2021, she won her court case, setting a positive precedent for the transparency of fossil fuel funding in university research. Congratulations, Emily. This is an important win. So now let's get to it. I start by asking Emily what she sees as the role of academics in Canada's transition to a low carbon future. Oh, that's a great question. (laughs) Thanks. Um, Well, I think actually the biggest uh, benefit that academics bring to the conversation is academic freedom. And so I look around at people working um, in various different locations, whether it's inside a government or um, as a bureaucrat or um, leading governments as politicians or in opposition as politicians or through NGOs or whatever, whatever other location on these sort of questions of transition. And what those folks don't have is academic freedom. In other words, they always have somebody, a boss somewhere or a party line um, telling them what they can and can't say. And so I think really the benefit that academics bring is um, the promise that we have within our employment contracts of academic freedom, 
which allows us to go against the interests of the university um, and to speak um, the truths as we see them. And so that's something I think that we ought to keep defending and fighting for within academia, but it also means that um, academics should use that. Um, we should be saying the things that people in other sectors can't say because it's unpopular or it goes against the company's image or whatever else it may be. So important. Um, and you've even challenged your own university. Is that correct on some of this? Yeah, because I care so much about academic freedom. Um, I actually have a lawsuit against the University of Regina. It was supposed to be, the decision was supposed to come in, in June, but we haven't um, heard the results yet. Um, and that was um, a challenge to an access to information request that I had made to the university asking for um, the funders of contracts at the university relating to research about fossil fuels. And um, uh, of course, universities are public institutions. Most of the researchers doing the research are paid for, in part at least, um, through public dollars, also through tuition. Um, and I thought accessing this very most basic information about who funded the research, um, the title of the research grants, should be a matter of public record. The university denied that. And so eventually I had to take it um, to the Court of Queen's Bench. Um, to hopefully get a good precedent on this, because I believe that that information should be a matter of public knowledge. So, working in Regina, in oil country, in 2016, you published a book entitled False Lines, Life and Landscape in Saskatchewan's Oil Economy. Tell me about this book. What was it about? Where did the idea come from? Um, well, I in 2009, I got my job at the University of Regina. I grew up in Saskatchewan, but I had done my graduate work in Ontario. And so I was finishing my PhD and I came back to Saskatchewan. And that was the middle of the oil boom here. Um, uh, most people think about fracking in terms of natural gas. Um, or if they think about oil at all, they think about uh, the North Dakota fracking boom. And Saskatchewan is actually um, part of the same geological basin as um, the area in North Dakota um, that experienced the shale oil boom. So we were also experiencing it in Saskatchewan. Um, prices of oil were very high, um, a lot of new drilling happening, and nobody in the province was talking about um, the oil boom. And there's a rich um, set of academics who've been studying Saskatchewan's natural resource economies for a long time. But most of that work has focused on um, uranium um, and potash. And so I looked around and I thought, gee, nobody's studying the oil industry here. So I began studying the oil industry. Um, and then for the book, I did some, I've always been, um, interested in the kind of research that is more, um, I don't want to use, <laughs> I don't want to appropriate the term ethnographic because I know anthropologists think of that in particular ways, but um, grounded, I guess, in the lived experiences of people. Um, and so 
for me, it was really important to spend some time in oil producing areas of the province. So in 2014, um, along with a photographer named Valerie Zink, we rented a, um, a half ton truck and we pulled a trailer and we went to all the oil producing areas in the province and just spent some time in the campgrounds, which was really interesting too, because a lot of oil workers um, were living in campgrounds during the summer as well and working in the industry. And so we stayed in campgrounds and um, interviewed all sorts of people that um, were affected by the oil economy in these oil producing regions. And so out of that came the book, which is mostly photographs, but also has um, some text from me. And I think sort of focuses on the ambivalence that people have towards the oil industry. So one thing that we did was spend some time with ranchers and farmers who have oil wells on their land and who, when you talk to them, will say, look, I don't have anything against the oil industry. It's been good for our community. My grandson works in the industry. Um, our town wouldn't be here without oil. But, and then they might spend an hour and a half talking about the negative consequences of having the oil wells um, and other social and economic impacts in their communities. Um, so they couch this ambivalence in a sort of broader support for the oil industry. But when you really dig into it, there's a really long list of grievances that people have with um, the oil industry and the oil economies in their local areas. And so that's kind of what the book is about, is really trying to understand people's lived experiences of negotiating um, you know, some of the negative impacts um, and their hopes and fears for the future alongside um, their understanding and broad sort of support for the industry in certain ways. What was it like to do this research in the field, in the camps as a woman? Um, asking, <laughs> asking challenging questions and uh, kind of, I'm curious what that was like. Right. Okay. So <laughs> I could actually talk a lot about that, but I'll try to keep it brief. Um, maybe, maybe two things. Okay. So the first one is that often as a woman, um, I think there's a sort of sexist assumption that, um, and also I think, you know, this was also five years ago, I appeared even younger than I am today <laughs> on the phone, I can sometimes sound <laughs> quite youthful as well. <laughs> and so I think, you know, in setting up the interviews, people had this idea that I was this young woman, um, a sexist assumption, probably that um, I couldn't really know anything about the oil industry. And in some ways, that kind of worked in my favor. Um, when I talked to regulators, you know, they were very careful with trying to explain to me the ins and outs of the industry because I might not understand it or might not know. <laughs> um, and that actually was um, beneficial just because of the depth of, um, of knowledge that I gained in that way. Um, but also, yeah, I think like in those spaces, you're constantly sort of, especially um, outside of the space of an interview proper, but more in a sort of ethnographic setting, you're always sort of sexualized, um, which again, because of the sort of um, sexist and patriarchal nature of our societies can gain you access to certain spaces and certain insights as well. 
Um, so in a certain way, you know, um, trying to live with it, I don't want to say embrace it because I didn't embrace it, but trying to mm. um, live with it in a way that allows you to sort of gain more access um, was something that I tried to do a little bit on the um, on the trip. So I think had I been a, um, a man or a man presenting person that um, I wouldn't have gained access in the same ways that I did. Um, and probably the nature of the conversations would have been different as well. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, thank you for sharing that. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So you wrote a book about oil economy and, and now um, it seems like your research and your work has um, taken you more recently uh, in the direction of renewable energy, looking at a clean and just transition to a low carbon economy. Is that, mm-hmm. is that a fair kind of view on, yeah. on the path? <laughs> <laughs> I think so. So yeah, moving sort of away from you know, understanding the um, power and influence of the industry, um, which can be very sort of suffocating in many ways, especially in a place like Saskatchewan, um, where there really are few people who will talk about um, the negative impacts of the industry or even the need for a transition. And now I'm moving towards maybe um, the more hopeful idea that (laughs) someday um, we may actually be on a path to transition. And what could that look like? Um, both locally, um, whether that's at the scale of the city um, of Regina or um, provincially or or more broadly within what we call Canada. Excellent. Cool. So let's dive into some of those more hopeful, maybe, (laughs) opportunities and kind of dig into those. So a couple of years ago, you organized a summit in Regina to explore more what a just transition to renewables could look like for the province. And you were published in a CBC op-ed stating that, quote, the idea of a renewable energy transition is exciting. It opens up space to think about not just decarbonization, replacing fossil fuels with renewables, but also enhancing democracy and acting on decolonization. Can you talk about how democratization and decolonization fit into the work of a just transition to a low carbon economy? Yeah, sure. So that's, um, thanks, you really did your research. (laughs) Like any good host. (laughs) Um, That's something that um, Simon from the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives and I have been trying to um, champion is this idea of a 3D transition. So I think, um, sorry, I think many people are um, coming around to the idea now that there needs to be an energy transition. Um, partly because, you know, um, the latest IPCC report says we need to get to 45 percent below 2010 levels by 2030 and net zero by 2050. So the timelines are tight. Um, But I think there's a lot of disagreement around how we do that and what should be prioritized in the process. And so if you look at sort of conventional economics, um, 
people who champion that perspective have been talking about a carbon tax. They've been talking about a carbon tax for a long time. <laughs> in my opinion, it's too little, too late, politically untenable, um, especially in a province um, or in any of the provinces in Western Canada, um, where, for example, Saskatchewan, we rejected the federal plan, or we rejected to make our own plan, so we have the federal backstop now. Um, and what we've been advocating is we can't just see climate change policy as decarbonization, because decarbonization has usually been associated with carbon taxes or carbon pricing in some form. And individuals understand that as costs to their lives. Um, and they don't understand why they should pay for that. But if we think about climate change policy as potentially um, also social and economic justice, then we can open up a whole bunch of other potential policy pathways that actually make people's lives better. So democratization, um, we mean it in a broad sense. Um, so how under, so our current carbon economies concentrate wealth in a few people's hands at the top. Democratization is about redistributing that wealth and power, right? So whether that's in our workplaces or um, in our municipalities or wherever it might be, we need to share power. Um, and here I mean political and economic power more broadly, um, but also maybe electricity and, the, and power generation in a more distributed and equitable way as well. So democratization is really about sort of wrestling our economies and our workplaces and our lives um, away from a handful of elites who've been profiting off of the fossil fuel economies. And then decolonization um, is a term that nobody will agree on exactly what it, what the, what it means. Um, but as a shorthand, if we say that colonization is the theft um, of land and life from indigenous people, then decolonization would mean that um, Canada as a settler colonial state begins to repatriate to give back land and life. So that includes jurisdiction and um, sovereignty and um, environmental decision-making. And if we did those things alongside decarbonization, if we pursued policies that actually redistributed land and wealth um, and made our economies more democratic, we believe that those would be policies that people could really support and get behind and get excited about. That average working class people could say, okay, well, this is gonna make my life better, right? If we make something like fair free public transit, um, everybody can benefit from that and they can see an impact on their own personal lives, a net positive impact rather than a cost. That was a long-winded answer. <laughs> so good, so important, thank you. Uh, yes, because yeah, we need to thank you for starting to unpack that for me a little bit. It's really helpful. So have you seen any examples of how this is working or where this is working or do you have any yeah, sources or places of inspiration for this 3D approach? Yeah, so I think um, one exciting thing is the set of really um, large uh, 
um, at scale visions for the future that is that are coming out now. So although it's not perfect, but these conversations in the United States around a Green New Deal, I think are really inspiring. So one book to read um, is a really short one called The Planet to Win. Um, it was written by four authors. Um, I could name three of them right now, but not the fourth, so I won't. Um, and that's, a, as I said, a really short book that sort of suggests here are some main things that we need to do that will that will do exactly what I've just said. In other words, make um, working class people's lives better in the process. Um, so investing in, for example, free, affordable or free and affordable um, pub, public and social housing um, that is, of course, mm -hmm. energy efficient um, and um, doing things like phasing out the fossil fuel industries um, through a just transition. So making sure that we take care of workers from the fossil fuel industries mm -hmm. in that process. Um, and that means not just giving them some money for retraining, but actually ensuring that they can transition to a good job of with a reasonable, reasonably comparable um, pay. So um, all of these sort of Green New Deal type proposals in Canada, um, we also have um, the folks at the Leap made um, did some consultations across Canada on a green uh, green deal. Canada's green deal, I think it is. Anyhow, it's close to green New Deal, but of course that's a, an American um, historical phenomenon, mm -hmm. the, new, the New Deal. So um, what I really like about these visions are that they're not just about changing individual behavior. They're about changing whole structural systems, right? So removing goods from um, the private marketplace and putting them back um, in public hands, um, which is really central. Um, the ideas of, of things like a federal jobs guarantee. And in many ways, I think actually we're closer mm -hmm. to that now that um, we're emerging from or still in the middle of the pandemic yeah. because we've seen um, that previously neoliberal governments across the world who have been telling us that there is no money for things like social housing mm -hmm. or um, uh, livable wages or all sorts of things are now coming up with the cash in an emergency. Um, and so I think if we can leverage these yeah. moments in the right way, um, we can make people realize that actually there is money out there. Um, it's being hoarded in some people's hands and it needs to be redistributed in ways that can make all of our lives healthier um, and happier yeah. in the long term. Yeah, it's interesting. I listened to um, an interview with Greta Thornburg and Naomi Klein and Adam Peltier. They did a a talk at uh, at the uh, as part of TIFF, the film festival, and and that's one of the things Greta spoke about is now we're seeing what governments can do when actually they acknowledge a crisis, and if we can make climate mm -hmm. make the climate crisis as clear and visible, and you know there is there there are responses, mm -hmm. there are ways, there is money, there is. Um, there are ways to address and deal with a crisis on a global scale. Mm -hmm. And, and they governments can act quickly. Yeah. Um, something I was reading lately um, talked about how one of the differences between the global pandemic, sorry, the global pandemic and the um, global climate change crisis is that 
the pandemic came mm. on very suddenly. And this goes yeah. back to the idea of, again, the corporate power of fossil fuel industries is that um, we have seen how industry and business has tried to um, prevent governments from imposing lockdowns and um, have pushed governments to open up, et cetera. But because the pandemic came on so quickly, they didn't have much time to organize their opposition. Unlike the climate crisis, where corporations had um, decades to organize their opposition and to organize their denial and to influence the trajectory of climate change policies. And so that's something I think we have to really grapple with is I am moving, as you suggested, towards maybe more hopeful lines of inquiry, but those um, the problems associated with corporate power mm -hmm. are still very much live, right? We need to dismantle um, the power of fossil fuel corporations before we can probably can have a transition because otherwise they just get in the way at every <laughs> possible moment. Yes. Okay. Cool. Well, good luck. I look forward to following how that all turn, you know, comes into being and turns out. So it's important, such important work. Yeah. Um, so kind of my last question and area that I kind of area of inquiry that I'd love to chat with you about is I've been thinking a lot lately about personally why I'm being called to speak to and amplify the work of women like yourself um, who are working on issues of climate and sustainability and transition uh, to a low carbon economy. And I'm, you know, just wondering why. Why am I being called to do this work for women? And why is this around women's stories? And I'm starting to explore also what it is about the feminine. Maybe it's not just about women, but what it is about the feminine approach. So, um, and and why is FN, what it is it, what is it about the feminine that is valuable in climate and energy and sustainability work? So my last question for you is I'm curious what insights, maybe reflections you may have from your field work and your research and your interviews um, on the value of the feminine perspective. And and does that and that doesn't necessarily mean women's perspective, but the feminine perspective. And I'm kind of curious what your thoughts are on that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> very good question. Very complicated question, I think, with, you know, many potential answers. But, um, well, I want to start by saying I don't think there's anything essential about, you know, having a vagina or certain types of chromosomes or identifying mm -hmm. in particular ways in terms of gender. Um, but I do think that um, women and um, people who um, present as feminine have a particular lived experience, um, not just a lived experience, many lived experiences. Um, but if we go back to this idea again about who has benefited from the carbon economies um, and who has not benefited, who've been left out, I think that um, we can we can look in terms of gender as well as being one of those axes of inequality. Um, certainly, so I think in, in, in that sense, I think, you know, women have a, a particular lived experience to share about and something at stake, I guess, in terms of writing our economies as well, turning them into a just future, right? Because that will materially benefit um, women and feminine identified folk. 
So um, I think, yeah, I think we have a lot at stake. But I think the other thing that I have also read a little bit about is just the ways in which, you know, the right-wing populism, the pro-pipeline, um, anti-mask movements also are quite misogynistic in their nature, right? And so I think, um, I think that, yeah, I, I, yeah, I think that getting outside of, or mounting a challenge, I guess, mounting a challenge to that sort of um, misogyny that is really finds its home in um, pro oil and gas movements in um, anti mask movements, etc, is something that's really urgent. In other words, I don't think we can confront the climate crisis, or the pandemic, without trying to undermine those like the misogynistic tendency in those movements as well. So I don't know if that answers your, your question at all. Um, but I think we have a lot at stake. We need to be fighting because we need a future that is different. Um, and as yeah. part of that different future, we need to disempower um, carbon capital, carbon misogyny, etc. So we, you know, women, feminine identified folks, allies are all welcome in that movement. Yep. A hundred percent. Absolutely. Oh, so good. So good to chat with you, Emily. Thank you for your time. It almost feels like we're live. Yeah, it's so great. Or together. I know. Absolutely. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time, Emily. Such a pleasure to connect with you. Thank you for your work. It's bold and it's important and it's really required right now. So thank you for sharing it with us today. Well, thank you for your podcast and um, for having me on today. It's been nice. Thank you for listening to the Plugged In Podcast. I'm having so much fun bringing this to you and I hope you enjoy it as well. Let me know what you think. Share it, rate it, leave a review, reach out. I am on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn. All the info can be found at pluggedinpodcast.ca. I am super thankful for all the love and support behind the scenes. Some special call outs to Ercilia Serafini and Summer Hill for supporting me with the time to explore and work on this personal project. So appreciated. And finally, to my guests, thank you for being the inspiration. Join me next time on the Plugged In Podcast. <laughs>